Welcome, everyone, to a special episode where we're going to be diving into the history of the Stonewall Uprising and its profound impact on the LGBTQ plus rights movement. We'll be journeying back in time to explore the pivotal moments that shape this movement. In this episode, we'll be spotlighting the Stonewall Inn. It's more than just a bar. It's a symbol of resistance, community, and the fight for equality. Absolutely. It's often forgotten that the first Pride is a riot. Pride started with rioting. Our rights weren't simply given to us, but they were stolen from us, and then they were fought for tooth and nail to be given Mm. back. So we're going to be going into the story of the Stonewall Riots and how the present-day Pride parades got their start in that evening of fighting. Yeah, super exciting. Um, it's it's yes. important to understand the history of the evolution of that. Um, and also, um, equally as important, is um, how Stonewall was situated in the middle of a bustling city, the bustling city of New York in, in the heart of Greenwich Village. It was actually tucked away on Christopher Street. Um, it was uh, It was tucked away because it was meant to be a refuge for the LGBTQ+. Plus individuals during that time when uh, being true to oneself is actually really risky, right? And it was an uh, act of defiance. The significance of this, uh, it being tucked away, reaches far beyond the, its uh, its modest facade. It's a place where um, struggles converged, where voices were amplified, and where the history was irrevocably altered. Words are hard. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, no, I get it. <laughs> that's a rough one. Irrevocably, that's, a, that, you know, that's one you of know. those, that's one of those ones. <laughs> But yeah, even like Stonewall specifically tried to have like a cheap entrance fee. That was like one of the big things with them is having a low entrance fee. So homeless queer youth who genuinely couldn't afford to go anywhere else would shoplift and do what they had to do in order to afford the entry fee for Stonewall, where it was feasible to get in. Like it was the only place. Yeah, that's it's it's crazy to even think about that, you know? That that was the only that was the only safety place, um, the environment that wasn't subject to a lot of the uh, persecution. And, you know, at that time, people were in a position where they had to hide their identities. Right. And um, almost live like a dual life for fear of like for that fear of that persecution. No, it's, it's it's wild. Absolutely. And even like a lot of these queer bars even like weren't necessarily safe like they were they were mafia run. The only places that queer people could safely and legally, quote unquote, because it was still illegal, drink, were mafia-owned bars because serving alcohol to any gathering of queer people was illegal. It was considered disorderly conduct. What's interesting in in that statement about the mafia running the bars, just to have uh, that extra layer of protection, is that in the history, there were actually mafia that would blackmail gay men. You know, which is sort of like ironic, right? Easy. It's insanity. It's just 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 thinking about like you're just trying to have fun and like the it's so weird. Like just the act of gathering and drinking was literally revolutionary. (laughs) Yeah, that will never not blow my mind. Right. Yeah, it's because they they were being prevented from like you know just entirely meeting out in public. And drinking together and just being social and being able to live their lives the way they wanted to live them without being deemed some sort of like disorderly conduct, which is crazy. Well, absolutely. It's any gathering of queer people was considered a disorderly conduct situation. So you, you could not serve alcohol to that situation. The situation would be broken up by cops almost immediately if they were discovered. Like, 
Right. So, so the deal with the mafia, um, just to connect those parts, because I don't know if I made that connection, but they always ran, well, not always, I'm just going to say, this isn't really about the mafia, but the mafia did obviously conduct illegal things, businesses, et cetera. And, you know, it would allow the gay community or the LGBT plus community to meet quote unquote illegally. Right. So they had a gathering place and the, the part with the blackmail with the rich gay men was that the mafia would threaten to out them to the public because, because they were living these dual lives, but it was to protect that very same community in which they were a part. So it's, it's wild. Yeah. The, the, the twists, the, the way people will hold things against each other and use things against each other that have absolutely no right to be held or used against another person is just like, and this yeah. all happened like this was in my parents' lifetime, you know, like this wasn't right. that long ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't even too too much before Wild. I was born, even. Yeah, but the crazy thing, like with all this adversity, there was born like this sense of shared experience and and this this type of re- resilience that began to take root, right? Like setting the stage for an eventual spark that would ignite an entire movement for change. And I I feel like since 1969 with the riots, right? And then um, 1970 with the first uh, Pride March, all the way until today, we've made tremendous strides. Do you want to dive into like the uprising and the resistance um, during... Want to detail some of the events of uh, June 28th, 1969? I am down, yeah. Let's do cool, that. Cool. All right. So uh, June is Pride Month. People were throwing Enraged. cop cars. Yeah. Mm-hmm. People were throwing bricks at the windshields and shattering them. And it was just like a mosh People pit. were ripping parking meters out of the ground. Like people were literally busting them. Yeah. Wasn't it like five five it days? It was five days of protesting. Yeah. Yep. Well, technically, so the, the first one was really the only like riot riot, but the Stonewall Inn opened the next night not serving alcohol and kind of had like a, like a decent sized gathering right. that was broken up by almost double the amount of riot police in like that amount of time for no reason, even though they were just peacefully standing there and, and shouting. Right. But I think the reason why Stonewall reopened the next day was to provide refuge for the community that protested mm-hmm. the previous day 100 yeah back back to you know life for the queer people before the riots like what does that climate look like leading up to the first riot on that 1969 day what was the climate like what were people going through what were their struggles yeah so up until 1961 homosexual relationships specifically between two men were entirely illegal in all 50 states due to anti-sodomy laws crazy like it that's just that's it Illinois was the first state to get rid of those laws in 1961 and thus legalize homosexuality, though it was one of those things where, like, it's not like they did it with that purpose, you know? That just kind of happened by proxy. Yeah. And they were arrested for crimes of indecency, right? For, like, being just being seen in public, which is crazy. Like, if they were just being seen in public or they were even out or just people kind of just assumed that they were queer, they were arrested. Mm -hmm. It was absolutely wild. And then, like, in 1952, it was added to the DSM, specifically homosexuality. It was added to the DSM, which is the Diagnostic Statistical Manual. But the DSM of of the time uh, released with homosexuality in it as this just perverse disorder of the mind and of the sexuality. 
So from there, people who were arrested for that act, rather than being thrown in prison, were usually just thrown in institutions. And they were lobotomized, they were medically castrated, or they were just kept medicated in these institutions for the rest of their lives. Just hearing you say that makes me think of the Nazis and how people were actually human experiments. And um, it's not just the Nazi war. I mean, there, this, there's, there's tragedy on the level of the Nazi war in other areas. And I think that they just didn't make it to the forefront of the news, right? Um, so Guatemala had the their civil war. No, absolutely. Um, and their tragedies, I think, even superseded the Nazi war, but it was the same type of thing where there were human experiments and um, they would just walk up to your front door and they felt like slaying you, they would um, in front of children and so on and so forth. And that's not the road that we're going down right now, but you are right. It is a diagnostic and statistical manual and it's actually a compilation of mental disorders. And was only removed from that like in the past like decade recently. or so like yeah, it, it, yeah like it it wasn't all that long ago that it was removed it was in my lifetime <laughs> right yeah it's nuts and even even drinking laws i think um you know uh if if anybody in the in our lgbt plus community was actually drinking alcohol then that would it was to be considered disorderly conduct absolutely yeah it, it just existing was was horrific if it as um there's an article by uh, Gideon Grudo called The Stonewall Riots, What Really Happened, What Didn't, and What Became of the Myth. Was there a first brick? Does it matter? Historians of the Stonewall Riots talk about what we know about the historic LGBT protests in late June 1969 and their continued mystery. It's a mouthful, but a mm -hmm. fascinating read. Sounds amazing. He says in it, uh, some punishments for homosexuality, uh, men have found to have sex with other men were given electrical and pharmacological shock therapy, castrated and lobotomized. Wow. That's just losing your entire sense of self for love. I mean, at that point, I think you're. I mean, we, we saw it happen. Yeah, we saw it happen to Kennedy's sister. It's yeah. you. We saw what happened when someone is lobotomized. Mm hmm. There is no denying at this point that doing that to someone completely removes their sense of self. It just completely detaches them from their sense of self. Right. Yeah, it's it's terrifying to even process. Yeah, they, they, that was actually one of the things that got me interested in looking into queer history as a child was I started looking into um, institutionalization, the early days of institutionalization and how it progressed in America and found out that so much of what happened in Nazi Germany was inspired by institutionalization and eugenics in America. They, we inspired them. They, they, they took influence from what we were doing to queer people and to people of color and to disabled people and went, oh, we can do that, but bigger. That's pretty sick. It, it blows my mind. That's why I, I, there's so much about helping our community that is intersectional. It, it, it involves mm -hmm. helping people of color and ending systemic racism and systemic oppression and systemic violence. It involves ending uh, a, a, um, ableism and helping the disabled community and providing equal opportunities for every disabled person so that we can all succeed at an equal level. Like. Absolutely. It's, it's everything. It's so yeah. intersectional. Because once yeah. it happens to one, it can just so easily happen to another. Yeah. And that's just like the holistic mindset, right? You're looking at the big picture and how everything's interrelated. You're not just looking at one sector saying, okay, how can we how can we evolve this separate from the whole? 
you know, it's kind of looking at like the body's expressing symptoms. Well, how do we just get rid of the symptom or put a bandaid on it? Well, you know, you're not looking at the root cause of the problem, right? It's just having that, yeah. that holistic mindset and approach. You have to get to the source. Yeah. Yeah. And you're right though. It, like things are layered. There's a lot of layers. There's so many different um, facets involved. And then, and then, you know, people are at different places at different times. It's also layered in the way that the world responds to your approach or our collective approach. I 100%, should say. 100%. Yeah. yeah, yeah it's, so it's just, it will, it will, it will never not boggle my mind the way our treatment of each other evolved from it started in one place and then just it just it it, it it grows so quickly hatred grows so quickly if if you let it you know yeah yeah it festers <laughs> absolutely yeah. yeah and and where where energy goes it flows and so um you know if one person is full of hatred and then they teach that to their children or they they touch the people they work with right it just it spreads really fast and it takes more courage to actually change the narrative. Oh my God. Yeah. Um, and stand up for what's right than it does to just, you know, misery loves company, right? Join in on it regardless if you actually feel that way, you know? So, um, but now that we've, we've kind of painted the picture and the culture of the climate and, and what things sort of look like before leading up to the riots. Life for queer people. I guess with all the police raids and everything, right? That was kind of routine during that time, um, <clears throat> in the fifties, sixties. And, um, the police would come in and people would kind of hide. They didn't want to be found out. They didn't want to be seen. They didn't want to be caught drinking. It was specifically for bootleg liquor usually. Right. Yeah. yeah it was usually the yeah. cops were raiding for bootleg alcohol that the mafia was home brewing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. People just kind of shuffle and, 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 uh, peace out. Before most of these raids, the bars were mm -hmm. tipped off. And before these raids, corrupt cops that were being paid off by the mafia would let the mafia bosses know, like, hey, there's going to be a raid at this bar on this night. So, like, hide your alcohol, let your patrons know. And queer people would just be able to either flee or not show up in the first place because they were aware. The difference with Stonewall is, is it was one of the only raids that there was no tip off for. They just did it. They didn't let anyone know. <laughs> no one knew it was coming and it make, made all the difference mm -hmm. yeah yeah so that night that that mm -hmm. night really like was it was just a wild string of events that like it was just like fate you know like it just so happened that they weren't tipped off and it just so people didn't run because they didn't know and like it made history because of that everything changed <laughs> yeah yeah it's incredible that is yeah. so serendipitous <laughs> Yeah, I love that. I love it. Rather than just submitting to like yet another um, unjust intrusion, they just decided that they had enough, you know, they endured enough and defiance yeah. surged through, you know, the air, I guess. And um, it was, or you're right, it's, it was a spontaneous protest, right, which erupted. And, and it, it was a pushback. No, 100%. Yeah. It was a pushback against the the oppression up until that point. Yeah, it was around one in the morning. So like people were already like, you know, there was a buzz in the crowd. Like, you know, people were already into the night. It's one in the morning, you know, yep. and police all of a sudden just 
barge in, no warning, no nothing. And they just start arresting people in droves, specifically those who were violating the um, anti-trans laws of the times, where it mm -hmm. said if you were wearing more th uh, less than three articles of clothing that matched your assigned gender at birth, you had to, you mm. were arrested. That's it. You were arrested. Yeah. So yeah. they, they storm in and they just start arresting patrons and they, they arrested 13 patrons in all and just one swoop through the place just because they were gay and happened to be in public and drunk. Oh no. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's crazy because, um, this spread over several days and nights, not just that one night. And, um, mm -hmm. the, the resistance, oh, yeah. it was not, it was not just about resisting the arrest. It was actually, you know, uh, a declaration that, hey, enough is enough. Yeah, it became a force overnight. Like, it changed people's lives overnight. It shattered the uh, the facade of complacency. And it really empowered oh, individuals yeah. in that community, in the LGBTQ plus community, to come together to um, demand justice, respect, recognition. And, and it really was. It was a turning point. It was um, like a catalyst, right, that ignited the fires of activism, advocacy, um, ultimately, right, leading to this movement that would reshape society's perception of our community, the LGBTQ plus um, rights forever. And, and they're still, they're still reshaping. Yes. And it's so interesting because it feels like this is one of the very few turning points for an entire community that is so fuzzy. <laughs> if that, if that makes sense. Like, no one actually knows how the rioting really started. So uh, there's another quote from that same article from earlier uh, from two men who were there that night at Stonewall. And this was their account. There was no omniscient presence looking down at the scene, Marcus told me. Stonewall is problematic. Memory is what we remember, how we wish to remember it and how we wish to be remembered in it. And besides, Duberman tells me before laughing, everyone was stoned. It, it's it's mm. one of those things where... Yeah, too sure. Right? Like, it makes me want to cry because it's true. There, there, what, there is no Bible of Stonewall. There is no person who claims to know exactly what happened. Like, it's just a bunch of humans wanting to remember themselves the hero but also wanting to remember everyone as the hero and it's so beautiful it's so so beautiful uh, there's just everybody has their own truth right and their own experience in it so that quote kind of encaps encapsulates that very specific to this event where like you said they're just saying like hey um I was I was an integral part of this very very poignant rights movement. Mm -hmm. I was a poignant part, and there is no small part. Every part is equally as important as the other, but also you were so important too, and everybody was in the right place and right timing, and everything just came together mm -hmm. the way it did, and and there were a bunch of trailblazers really because like we wouldn't we wouldn't be still evolving today if that event didn't take place on that level. It's one of those nights that I wish I could look at, like, as, like, a fly on the wall. You know, like, I'd give anything to just see that night from some kind of lens. Um, it, it's actually interesting because because it's such a fuzzy thing where no one's really sure how exactly it started, there's a lot of, I want to say rumors, because I feel like rumors is just such a bad way of putting it. I would say more mythos. 
there's a lot of mythos that came from that night, you know, a lot of legends. Yeah. And oh, I feel like one of the biggest mythos that came from the night is the act of Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera throwing the first bricks of Stonewall. <laughs>